You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, there is a uh, short list of things that I'm willing to break fellowship over with another person in the Christian faith. It's a short list, uh, but it's an important list. Um, It's things like uh, the deity of Christ and uh, the doctrine of the Trinity and substitutionary atonement and uh, whether or not you have seen and enjoyed the movie Shawshank Redemption featuring the indelible Morgan Freeman. These are the things that for me are deal breakers, right? You gotta have a line, you have to have standards, you know what I mean? And uh, I actually uh, just talked to somebody on our staff recently who hadn't seen it and I I haven't looked him in the eye for like two weeks. It's been, (laughs) it's been a real thing. So uh, if you haven't seen Shawshank, I'm surprised you're here. It's actually part of covenant membership to kind of get into this <laughs> deal. I, uh, I, I love the movie. Uh, it's, it's really uh, tremendous. It came out about like 30 years ago. It's, it's about uh, a guy named Andy Dufresne who in like the 20s is framed for a crime that he didn't commit, a heinous crime, a crime of murdering his wife. And the guy gets put away in prison for life, gets a life sentence, and he's put in Shawshank prison. And it's just hell on earth, man. I mean, it's just, uh, as this movie unfolds for like the 16 hours that this movie is, it is, uh, you're just just watching the worst version of life take place in this prison. And the the thing that drives the viewer on as you're watching is like, how is this guy who is just have every, just every opposition thrown at him, how is he going to thrive in that? How is he going to make, how is a guy who's been wrongfully accused, put in prison for life, like how is that guy going to endure and, and, and the reason we even talk about the movie now uh, and, and, and love it so much is because we know how it ends. We know that the way he was able to endure is because he knew something the warden didn't. And he knew something that uh, the guards didn't and the prisoners didn't. He knew that behind that poster in his prison cell was a hole that he started digging like 20 years prior. And that hole led out of his prison cell, out of the prison, into the sewer system, and out into freedom. Uh, that's a 30-year-old spoiler alert for you guys. Sorry if, uh, if I just ruined the whole thing for you, but you deserve it. Um, <laughs> He, he was able to endure because he knew something that the other people didn't. That information, those truths, those realities, when he, when he embraced them, they gave him the, the resilience to persevere, right? And, and human beings have known this for a long time. Like that, that is an important aspect of how we thrive under affliction. Uh, Viktor Frankl learned this uh, pretty quickly in the 1940s. Viktor Frankl, if you haven't heard that name, he was a guy who was, uh, uh, he was a Jewish man who was a, like a psychotherapist and a psychiatrist in the 30s and 40s, and he was put uh, during uh, World War II into several different concentration camps, uh, one of them being Auschwitz, the, the very horrible Auschwitz concentration camp. Now, he's a man of the mind. He, I mean, he studies people for a living, and so he couldn't help but just uh, observe the folks as he was there, and he noticed something about the people who were there in the concentration camp. He noticed there were sort of two groups of people, same circumstance uh, coming at these people, circumstances of oppression and persecution and difficulty and, and, and famine and just all of, the, all of the things that make Auschwitz uh, just the most miserable place on earth. But there were two groups of people who responded very differently. There was a group of people who, when that, the onslaught of that weight of trial and tribulation came on them, the, he would watch them just wither and wither and wither and die. 
And right next to them, another guy or girl would be uh, dealing with the exact same circumstance and somehow there was some resiliency there, there was some endurance there. And what he observed as he was asking the question, what makes one different than the other was this, the difference maker in the concentration camp about who made it and who didn't, who withered and who thrived was this. Did they have a sense of meaning while they were there? Was, was there a sense of meaning in their suffering? When, when they were going through suffering, did, did, did they have a sense that that suffering mattered? Was there a reason for them to live beyond just survival? Did they have something else to live for? If they did, what, what Victor noticed was they were able to, to have some resiliency that people around them didn't. He wrote a book on it called Man's Search for Meaning that's just dealing with this very thing. Meaning made the difference. How do you, how you decide to see the world and your circumstances will sustain you in affliction. Do you see that? It's, it's, it's a truth that, that is, it's just a truism of humanity. And that's exactly what we're seeing this morning in the letter to the church at Smyrna. Of all the seven churches in Revelation, that's what we're doing in this series. Of all the seven churches, it's only one of two churches that has no hard words from Jesus. Did you know that? Just this one in Philadelphia. Uh, there's no rebuke coming for them, nothing like that. It's because their main issue was not so much their sin as it was their suffering. They were enduring an immense weight of persecution in the city of Smyrna. And it makes sense because Smyrna was a really uh, unique cocktail of circumstances that came together that made it really tough to be a Christian. It was, uh, uh, it was in modern-day Turkey, located about 35 miles northeast of uh, Ephesus that we covered last week. And Smyrna was this, yeah, it was this interesting cocktail. So, for, for instance, uh, the city of Smyrna had an incredibly close relationship with Rome, with the Roman Empire. So, in AD 23, we're going to get a little nerdy for a second, but in AD 23, they were granted uh, this status called Neochorus. And Neochorus meant Rome looked at them and said, you get to house the temple for the emperor. They worshipped the emperor back then. And so, this city, of all the cities, was granted to build a gigantic temple for Tiberius Caesar uh, for the worship of him. That was taken taking place in Smyrna at the time. It's a really close relationship with Rome. Rome, who, by the way, hates Christians, was suspicious of Christians, called them atheists because they wouldn't sacrifice to the emperor. I mean, this, they controlled the finances, the, the, the economy, they controlled your jobs. I mean, it, it, you were at Rome's mercy, and Rome and Smyrna were together in this, right? So th there was that aspect of it. And then Smyrna also had a really large Jewish population. We know this from uh, church history and things like that, but in the text we even read uh, that in verse 9 the church was dealing with, quote, slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So what was happening in Smyrna among the Jewish population, the religious elites, is they were trumping up charges against the Christians, inciting very likely the, the Roman government to now act uh, in opposition to the Christians to sort of bring oppression on them. So you have governmental opposition, you see? You've got religious opposition. The heat's on. The heat's on this morning. It, it was hard to be a Christian. In, in the middle of all of this heat and difficulty, Jesus is going to speak. He's writing a letter to them. His words are intended to, to flood all of their trials, all of their suffering, all of their affliction with incredible meaning so that they could thrive. That's what this letter exists for. Now, I want to just say this at the front uh, because you've heard the letter read. You know what we're in store for today. Uh, you wouldn't be wrong to think something like this this morning. What does this letter have to do with me, bro? This, is, this letter is just all about folks who are enduring like 
immense amount of persecution for their faith, and that is so not my current experience. And you'd be right. If you took a pin, and you try to find, like, on the map of the world, like, probably the safest place for a Christian to live, you could do a lot worse than Midlothian, Texas, right? I mean, can we just all agree we're doing okay, okay? We're, we're going to be fine, right? Uh, so I, I, I could see how someone would feel like, does this have anything to do with me? Uh, and in a sense, no, but in, in a sense, yes, because uh, the reality is, though this is a safe place for us, we all understand things are changing, right? So it is safe, but, it, but things are changing. The, we do not share the same presuppositions with our country that we have for a couple hundred years now, and we're, we're becoming weirder and weirder to the watching world. Are we not? Right? It is, it is uh, stranger and stranger that we would hold to things like a biblical sexual ethic or that we would define uh, terms of sex and gender the way we do or that we would hold to the sanctity of human life. These, these things, the world looks at us weirder and weirder and it hasn't always been like that. And so we're, we're noticing a gap growing. So that, that thing is happening. So uh, yes, we're not, we are not in the Smyrna game, right? Uh, but there's, there's something Maybe cooking. And, and here's the other thing. Um, just because we're not in the game, I mean, I don't know much about sports, but I know that you typically practice before the game. Right? I think that's typically how it goes. You don't, you don't typically try to learn how to uh, block a linebacker while the linebacker's sitting on your windpipe. Like you don't, that's not typically the order of things. You typically have practice first and then you go on the field. Uh, so one of the things that I think we need to, to feel today is, hey, this is, if nothing else, preparation for me for whatever the Lord might have in the future. So I'm going to listen closely because I want to be prepared for the game if ever it comes, right? Is that fair? But there's, an, there's another thing here uh, at play too. And, and it's Midlothian. There's more places than Midlothian in the world. Yeah? Did you guys know that? It is true. It's true. Uh, if you move out from Midlothian in Texas and the United States, all of a sudden now when we're getting into other nations and we're getting into areas like the 1040 window, now we're discovering, oh, there's, a, there's most Christians in the world are in the Smyrna game in a way that we aren't. So uh, there's a report that was just released, uh, the 2022 uh, report from Open Doors, that organization that they track uh, global persecution. And in virtually every category that they measure, a measure of persecution of the Christian church uh, internationally, every category, persecution's on the rise. Uh, year over year and this year in particular. So r right now, just to give you some perspective, 360 million Christians right now are living in nations with what they say are high levels of persecution or discrimination where it is not safe or cool for you to be a Christian at all. That's one out of every seven Christians in the world are in that sort of situation. When you, when you measure it by, just, uh, by violence, um, committed against Christians, that is also on the rise. So in the 2010-22 uh, report, what we discovered is uh, last year, uh, just under 6,000 Christians were murdered for their faith internationally. That's up 1,000 from the last year. And that's just the ones that are reported, right? I mean, there's obviously, there's, there's probably so many more than that. But what we're seeing is an increase of these numbers and these rates. So my point is just to say this. We're asking the question this morning in this text, how are we to prepare ourselves for future hostility, right? And how do we pray well and feel appropriate burden for and intercede for folks who are already in the game in a way that we're not? Yeah? 
That's why this text matters for us this morning. So I want us to feel that as, as we keep going. Jesus is going to provide us some answers. He's going to provide us some tools, three tools that we need in our suffering, in affliction, that's going to flood it with meaning so that we can endure. Three tools, perspective, purpose, and promises. That's where we're going this morning. What are the tools that he's going to give us so that we can bear up under the weight of oppression and, and, and affliction? Perspective, purpose, and promises. So if you have your Bible, get it out. We're going to be in uh, Revelation chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 8. And this is the first thing we see, that in our persecution, we need to have perspective. And that's what Jesus is going to give us. Verse 8 says this, And to the angel of the church at Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your affliction and your poverty. So Jesus opens this letter by doing something very simple. He wants you to know that in your affliction, you are seen. And anybody in this room who's ever been in it, who's been in difficulty, whether it's persecution related or just a, a life of suffering and difficulty and hard that you might be in, how many dividends does it pay to know that you are seen by someone, that someone is familiar and acquainted with the grief that you're in? I mean, it matters so much. And Jesus starts by establishing that. But that's not quite enough, is it? Because it, to be seen by just anybody uh, doesn't always have the same impact. It matters who is doing the seeing. And so Jesus clarifies that. He says, these are the words of the first and the last. That's how he opens this letter. Now, why pick that? By the way, if you, when you're studying the Bible, it's always good to ask, why this and not that? Why did he use those words and not these words? Why did he say, he could have said anything about himself. Why did he say, I'm the first and the last? Well, I'll give you a clue. That phrase, is the first time it shows up is not here in Revelation. The first time that shows up is about 700 years prior in the book of Isaiah. When Isaiah is writing in chapter 44, verse 6, he says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no other God. Uh, this is going to be a... a a pass-fail question for you. Uh, who's doing the talking in Isaiah chapter 44? Who, who's talking there? Come on, guys. I heard it once. A little louder there. Thank you. God, Yahweh, the, the one who made you. Yeah, he's, he's talking there. God, God is speaking to the nation of Israel. He said, I'm the first and the last. I started this. I'm ending this. I'm everything. And what, is, what did we just read in Revelation? Jesus is appropriating that phrase that belongs to Yahweh to himself. What is Jesus really saying in the opening of this letter? He's saying, hey, I just want to let you know the guy who's writing this thing to you is God. He's God. I am God. God's writing to you right now. I'm talking to you. God, the first and the last, the guy who was here before Smyrna, I invented Smyrna. I'm going to be here after Smyrna. I am God, and I want you to know that whatever's coming after it, it's coming from the mouth of Yahweh himself, the Lord God Almighty, the creator of heavens and earth. That, do you feel the sovereignty in that? The, the might of that? He's, he's, this is their claims are about power and strength and authority. He is God, and he's starting that, uh, his whole letter establishing that, but not just that. He says, I'm the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. Now, why say this? Well, you know why he says this, because you heard the letter read a second ago. What is he about to look at these people and tell them? Some of you are about to die. That's what he says. And don't you think it would matter a little bit if the person who's 
telling you this can also look at you and say, and I want you to know, I faced it too. I stared death in the face. I charged right after it. And I want to let you know something. I came out on the other side victorious. I'm not only the sovereign God who has might and the, the biggest problem in your world looks like an ant pile to me. I'm not only that guy, but I'm also the one who the great crisis of your life, death that seems to be coming for you, I have faced it head on and I have come out victorious. Death is now dead because of me. Do you feel the power in that? Do you feel how that would change things for you if you got a letter from that guy versus just your buddy? This isn't just your buddy. This is the Lord God Almighty who conquered death itself. And he's looking at you and he's saying, I see your affliction. I know it. And I know your poverty. That changes everything. Why? Because when you're suffering, it's not enough that any old person sees you, but that the person with the power sees you. That matters. But think about Ukraine for a moment. What's one of the first things President Zelensky did when Russia invaded Ukraine? What was some of the first things he did? What did he do? He got himself before U.S. Congress. He got himself before the U.N. Security Council. He got himself before President Biden. Why? Because when you're suffering, it matters that the person with the power is with you. That matters. Switzerland won't do, right? Like if Switzerland rolled up to Ukraine and was like, hey, we all with you. He'd be like, I okay, are you going to give me some chocolate? What are you going to do? Am I going to get a nice watch out of this deal? Like, it's just not going to be very helpful to me. I need the guy with the nuclear warheads. So I'm getting before the U.S. Congress, thank you very much. This is what we do. When we're in the midst of suffering, we need to know that the ones with the power are also with us. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, I'm the one with the power, and I want you to know I am with you. So he's giving them a fresh perspective about their condition. You're not as alone as you think you are. But furthermore... You're not as destitute as you think you are. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, parenthesis, but you are rich. I love that. I had a mentor uh, in my uh, early years who always uh, loved to tell me, Jimmy, money is not the only currency, which to a broke 20-year-old meant quite a bit. Uh, oh, yeah, there's other currency. Who needs money? Uh, but it, what Jesus is doing here is, is saying something similar. He's trying to shift their perspective about where their real wealth is found because assuredly, these guys are suffering financially. I mean, Rome is on their backs. They're probably losing job opportunities. They're probably getting their money taken. We know from Hebrews that their property is being seized and taken away from them. So these things are happening and he's trying to redirect their perspective. And so he's going, hey, you, what you're dealing with is real. It's not fake. You've really lost material wealth. I'm just saying there's a realer real you need to see. You actually have Believer, more than you could ever imagine, because money is not the only currency. Now, let me prove this to you. This is not my idea. This comes from the scriptures. Uh, take James chapter 2, for example. What does James have to say about this? He says, hey, God has not chosen, or I'm sorry, has God not chosen those who are, listen, poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? He says, hey, there's something unique that God has given to, to folks who lack materially. He's given them the capacity for big, beautiful, robust faith in me. And that faith unlocks everything 
everything for them. And I, and I, I hesitated to put this in because when I, when I hear that at first blush, it's just, it's just a tough sell, man. When you're broke, like you're under an overpass, someone's like, hey, money isn't the only currency, man. You're rich in faith, bro. You're like, dude, I can't buy Chick-fil-A with faith. I, 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 I need actual money, right? Like faith bucks get me no Starbucks. I need real bucks, right? So I could see how this feels like, yeah, but I want you to understand something. Currency is only valuable if its value is shared by more people than just you. Let, let me explain that. If you come up to me after a service, I'm going to be standing right here. Uh, if you come up to me and you got a, a bushel of bananas in your arms and you go, I got all these bananas. I'm rich. I'm going to say you're bananas. Right? You're not rich. Those are just bananas. Go throw them away. Why are you holding a bunch of bananas? Why? Because that currency doesn't mean anything to me. It only means something to you. And can I, can I tell you something? Money, physical objects, stuff, wealth on this earth, that's bananas to God. He's just unimpressed. Like, it's not cool that you wear Armani. It doesn't matter to him. Like, he's over it. It doesn't do anything for him. It's just bananas for him. Real currency, real wealth in God's economy, you know what it says according to James? It's faith. Your faith is like a currency, and you can be rich in it. And that faith unlocks for you the kingdom of God because you inherit by faith the kingdom of the Son of God. And I don't know if you know this, how, how inheritance works, but if you inherit a kingdom, that means it belongs to you. Do you realize, Christian, that in Christ, everything Christ has, you have? Like, how would that change just everything about your life when you're in the middle of suffering? How would that change it to know, like, it, it looks like I've got nothing in this fight, but actually I have, I have everything. It's undercover boss, right? It, it looks like you're just a busboy, but you actually own the restaurant. That's what he's saying. He's like, you own all this. You, you, yes, you have poverty right now, but you are rich. That's what he's saying. And, and, and it changes our perspective. Now, now here's the problem with, with uh, all of that. All, all, all that I just said, it would make you think that relief is probably right around the corner. What, what we just read from Jesus, Jesus just wrote the Smyrna's a letter, and he said this. He opened with, hey, I'm the God of your fathers. I'm the creator of heaven and earth. I own everything. I'm on your team. You have all of my resources at your disposal. You would think, verse 10 would say, therefore, we're going to smash these guys. That would make sense to my brain. Is that what happens in verse 10? Look at verse 10. What happens? After all that, he says this. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you'll have tribulation. Is anybody else confused by that? It just doesn't seem to follow from I'm the strongest person in the universe and I'm on your team. That doesn't seem to follow. But here it is. He says, hey, don't fear, not because I'm going to smoke these jokers. Don't fear. It is coming. Prison is coming. Tribulation is coming. What is going on here? Is Jesus like all talk and no walk? Like he's, he's on the, you know, like court side, like, oh, I could do that. But then he gets out there, he doesn't even know how to dribble a ball. Is that what, it's like, dude, you got to dial it back, man. 
Is that what's happening here? This is, if you feel the same tension I feel, uh, you are experiencing what uh, philosophers for thousands of years have called the problem of evil, right? Here's the tension. How can a God who says he's all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving allow evil to persist? That's the tension. And it has caused people to leave the faith, to abandon Jesus, because they can't reconcile that tension. And I'll just give you my two cents uh, on the issue. I don't know if we're going to solve it all this morning, but uh, I'll say this. Uh, my answer to that question, how could God be all those and still be God if evil persists? My answer is this. I don't like your question. I, because it assumes that the greatest good God can give me is my ease. And I reject the premise. I don't think the greatest good God can do a human being is comfort and ease. I don't think that's true. I think the greatest good God can do you is to give you a dependence on God. That is what you need more than your comfort, more than your ease. And what if, Christian, it took difficulty showing up in your life for God to generate dependence in you? What if that was the mechanism God chose? So I think that's exactly what's happening here. Jesus' greatest agenda for your life is not ease. It is dependence on him. So he, he, he's, he's not giving us relief from persecution in this text. He's giving us purpose in persecution. He says, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. That you may be tested, that, that is a, do you see how that's a clause indicating purpose? Right? God is testing them to refine their faith. Is Satan up to something? Yeah, the text says it. It says the devil's about to throw you into prison. But it doesn't say, so that the devil may tempt you. It uses the passive voice. It says, so that you may be tested. So we don't actually know who's doing the testing here. But I'll tell you this, I know the scripture teaches the devil tempts, but God tests. The devil... The devil and God are working in your life in the exact same circumstance. The devil is having you thrown in prison so that you will despise God and perish. And God is allowing you to be thrown into prison so that in prison you will see he's my everything. And I need him. And I have to hold on to him. And he's my only hope. And, and on the other side of this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see him as bigger than I ever saw him. He's got purposes in it. He's got purposes. His purpose is to test you to refine your faith. This is not new news. This is what the scripture teaches everywhere. Listen to Peter in 1 Peter 1. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come. The trials have come. So why have the trials come? So that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by the fire, may result in praise, glory, honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Here is at least one purpose you can know for sure God has for you in your suffering. And it may be you right now. Here's at least one purpose. You can know absolutely for sure. I've got a verse for it. God is, has this purpose in mind for it. Those trials in your life, until they leave your life, they are there so your faith can be proven genuine and result in you 
praising Jesus when he returns. That you would, in the end, be able to say, he really did carry me. He carried me. It was the worst day of my life. But on the worst day of my life, I had a savior who was strong and he held me in his arms. And I trust him more than I ever have. You know what that does? That makes God look really good when you would say that. And it, and it, it does something to you. It, it explodes your capacity for joy in him. It makes you a resilient person. This is what God is up to, at least one thing that he's up to in the midst of your suffering. So are you in it right now? I don't know what's going on in your life, but if you're in it right now, you can know this is at least one thing he has in mind for you. He wants that resilience, that proven faith in your life so that he would get praise when his son returns. That's what he's up to. So can God remove our affliction? Yes, of course he can. He's God. He could do it right now. He could do it yesterday. Will he one day? Yes. That's why the book of Revelation exists, to let you know it's all going away one day. One day it will be with him forever, and it will be amazing. But until he does, he promises there is purpose in your pain. Do you see that? There's purpose in your pain. So Jesus gives us perspective. He gives us purpose. And then the last thing Jesus gives the church to strengthen us is this. He gives us promises. He gives us promises. He says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. That word crown is the word Stephanos. It's where we get our name Stephanie from or Stephen. And the, the idea of this use of the word crown is, is a type of wreath or a garland that would be put on, the, on a victor at like an Olympic game. It's that kind of crown. So think of like the kind of like floral kind of crown thing. A crown means we're celebrating something. It means two things. It means one, there is, we are in a sport right now. We, we have an ambition and a goal. And if you succeed, you get this. It means that, but it also means we're celebrating. Crown on your head means there's something to celebrate. And I love this news. What a promise. The, the, here's what's hidden in this, in this verse. Not one act of private faith in your life, not one, one moment of you enduring when it feels like the weight of the world is crushing you down is lost on your God. He spots it all, sees it all, knows it all, and you will be rewarded for it one day. There's a crown of life coming for everyone who is faithful unto death. What an amazing thought that is. So there's a crown coming, and he promises freedom from judgment, which I hope this is just a breath of fresh air to you. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That's what he says. That phrase is too weak in the English. In the Greek, you can do this cool thing where you, put a, you do a double negative. In English, if we make a double negative, it makes it a positive, right? You will not not be hurt by the second death. Means, dang it, sorry, you're gonna be hurt by the second death, right? But in the Greek, you say, ou-me, together, and it is the strongest way that you can communicate a negative. So what this text actually, if you were gonna write it literally, would say is, the one who conquers will never, ever be hurt by the second death. Brother, sister, you enduring to the end, you find him, him to be a treasure when all of your stuff is going away, when, when the health of your body is going away, when persecution is coming your way, you still finding him to be your treasure and your delight. Do you know what this means? It means that you will never even get a, a scent 
of the second death. It's never, ever coming into the mind of God. It is proof positive that you really are his, that he really did choose you, that he really did bring you into his family. You endured to the end. You will never be hurt by the second death. And you know what this does to the human? These promises, there's a crown coming for me. I'm, I will never taste death, not in that way. You know what it does? It just floods us with courage. It floods us with courage. So there, um, you may have heard of this guy before. His name's Polycarp. Uh, he was an early church father at the turn of the uh, first, uh, second century. Polycarp, interestingly, was a disciple of the guy who wrote this letter, John, the apostle. He was one of John's disciples. And Polycarp became a bishop or the, or the pastor of a church in a city called, wait for it, Smyrna. So Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna at the turn of the second century, discipled by John himself. He actually ran with the guys who ran with Jesus. And Polycarp, Polycarp lived to be 86, somehow, still trusting Jesus in this pagan society. And at the end of his life, there was a moment that came where he refused to bow the knee to the emperor. He refused to sacrifice to the emperor at the altar. And uh, Rome decided to put him to death. So they got him in the arena. They put him there in the middle. They got the, the uh, wood on the pyre there. They put him on it. All the, the uh, antagonistic, uh, antagonistic Jews were there along with uh, the wider watching Roman uh, world there in Smyrna. He's standing there with the proconsul uh, who looks at this 80-year-old man about to burn alive and he has some sympathy for him and he's, he's just appealing to the guy and, and the proconsul saying things like, hey, just abandon Christ. I'll let you go. It doesn't have to end with this. He, he, he looked him in the eye and said, revile Christ and live. And you know what Polycarp said back to him? This is, this is a quote from the letter of the Church of Smyrna sent recounting uh, Polycarp's martyrdom. He said this, for 86 years I've been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? How can I do that? They lit the flame and he was gone. How can someone say that? when their body is about to be licked with fire. How can someone say that? Because he knew the same God that has been with me for 86 years, the same Jesus who has carried me in all of this, is the same Jesus who 15 minutes from now is gonna be waiting on the other side of this moment with a crown of life for me. It's coming for me. I'm never gonna taste death ever. And so you just, you light it up, man. What does it matter? I have, I, I look poor to you, but I am rich. I have everything. I, I, I have perspective. I know that I'm not alone in this. I know that there's purpose in the middle of my pain. I know that he's refining my faith. And it's like an aroma to Jesus going up to him. And I know that there are promises I can hold on to that are gonna strengthen me in the middle of this torturous moment, so you do whatever you want. I'm about to see him, you go right ahead. That's how a Christian lives. That's how a Christian thrives. And that's what we're being called to in this text. Whether you are in the middle of it right now or not, you hold on to these realities. You remember that he's for you, he's with you, and 
right on the other side. He's waiting with a crown. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we're so thankful. You are the one who died and yet is alive. You are the first and the last. God, we thank you. We thank you that we're never going to be alone. I don't know if it's ever going to come to anything as significant as what the martyrs have faced. Or I don't know. But God, would you, would you please refine my faith, refine our faith here so that we would be the type of people who would say, no matter what hell comes my way, I love him. And my life means nothing compared to him. Oh God, produce that in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.